But I've seen some trainers who have more knowledge than you could shake a stick at, but they're crap trainers because they don't employ these strategies. Likewise, I've seen other people who really don't have great technical knowledge, but are fabulous trainers and get real good results from their clients because they get inside their heads. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find out how to access exclusive discounts on Phylex, the fitness industry convention. In this episode, prominent exercise physiologist and neuroscientist Paul Taylor talks motivational interviewing, coercion, and how exercise strengthens the area of the brain responsible for willpower, with Network's Oliver Kitchenman. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to be back at Phylex. Paul, you're known as pretty much the neuroscience guy in fitness circles. So what exactly is neuroscience and how does it relate to the fitness industry? Look, great question. It's a big topic, right? So neuroscience is the study of the brain or brain science. And so, you know, that goes all the way into its structure, its function. You can get into brain pathology, but I'm really interested in, in brain function and, and behavior and how basically the brain is the master conductor for the body, how it drives behaviors, but also how we can enhance its function. So I deal with a lot of corporates around improving how their brain actually functions. Uh, and I think from the fitness industry perspective, um, for me, that's been the missing bit is that people not focusing on the brain at all, where actually I think a lot of being in the gym or doing fitness is more about the brain than it is about the body. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling uh, or, or a cycle where the, the stronger you get physically, the stronger the brain's getting, and then the stronger the brain's getting, the, the better able you are to adhere to exercise. Yeah, so... so I wouldn't say stronger, that, that's one version of it, fitter, right? Mm-hmm. So basically brain health is, is driven by the health of your body as well. And for very good reasons. Um, so if we take exercise in general without diving into um, any of the specifics, what exercise does is it improves brain function. And it does that on a number of different levels, right? Um, so exercise creates certain growth factors in the brain, such as BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, and IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. And there's other growth factors that I could go on and on about. But uh, all of these growth factors, what they do is they act synergistically to create new brain cells and to cr- help create new connections in the brain and to actually protect our brain cells against damage. Now, and so that's right at a cellular level how exercise does that. And, and we can see, for instance, BDNF is linked to exercise intensity. So just going for a walk is good, particularly if you're a much older adult. But higher intensity exercise um, creates more of this stuff. Um, and we didn't know until 1997 that you could create new brain cells as an adult. But now we know you can, And but you need these growth factors. And exercise produces all of these growth factors. What they also do is they enhance our ability to learn and remember. They enhance, um, exercise enhances the function of certain parts of the brain, such as executive function, which is the, the kind of frontal lobe stuff, all your planning, your judgment, decision-making. 
We also know that exercise improves emotional control. So area like the, the what's called the emotional brain, uh, like the amygdala in areas of the prefrontal cortex, where it's basically emotional regulation. So people who exercise actually get better at that. But one thing that I'm really interested in is how and um, not only exercise generally improves brain function um, and how you think and all of that, um, but how it strengthens areas of the brain that we now know are to do with willpower. So the right prefrontal cortex we see in people who exercise, that becomes denser. They get new nerve cells and new connections. And basically that area becomes um, much stronger. So people then are able to exercise their willpower. So there's been lots of research showing that, that when people exercise, it acts as what we call a gateway behavior. So, you know, if someone goes to the gym, they're just getting into exercise and then after a while, they'll start to change their diet and then they might give up smoking or cut down their drinking. And we used to, we used to think about this in terms of, of um, psychology, that, that this is to do with, I now have a different view of myself, I now view myself as healthy, therefore these bad behaviours are, are, they don't sit with my new value, therefore I'm going to change them. What we actually know, at least part of that is to do with your strengthening your willpower. So um, there are benefits from, from doing that when you are regularly exercising, you actually strengthen that willpower. And we know that willpower is like a muscle. Roy Bowmaster showed, showed that. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. When you don't use it, it wills. So I think exercise is a gateway behavior to changing other behaviors that, that contribute to this whole obesity, diabetes, and other chronic health conditions. Okay, interesting. I guess that the uh, talking about strengthening your willpower there, that links to your something that you've said before about self-determination being a prerequisite for long-term change. So I guess that's the angle that the industry needs to focus on. Yeah, and, and look, I'd probably refine that. It, it, it's extremely important for long-term change. Um, it's not a prerequisite because you can, you know, you can constantly blackmail someone into changing and they'll do it, right? But for people changing voluntarily, this whole idea of self-determination and self-efficacy is pretty key. So, and I'm a big fan. I used to, in my early days as an exercise physiologist and personal trainer and nutritionist, I used to tell people what to do. They used to come in and go, I know what's wrong with you. I'll give you a great exercise program. I'll give you a great nutrition program. Some people it would work on if they were ready for change. Lots of people it wouldn't work on. And I now know actually that can be counterproductive. So some of the research shows all I'm doing is I'm increasing resistance in my client. So that's when I started getting into this whole science of behavior change and motivational interviewing, self-determination, which is a theory by Decky and Ryan and two you know, our University of Rochester researchers who've shown that this kind of covers 11 different health behaviors. So when people become self-determined, they cross what's called the threshold of autonomy, right? Before that, if you think of a whole continuum of motivation, you have people who are amotivated, right? So they have no motivation to change. Either they just have no desire to change or they think they're perfect, they're delusional, right? Then people often will move into what's called other determined extrinsic motivation. What the hell does that mean? It means something external to them is providing the motivation, such as someone's dangling a reward at them. If you do this behavior, I'll give you a reward. And we do that with our kids a lot, which is actually not great for long-term intrinsic motivation, right? So there's that reward because what shows that reward has to keep on having the same or more value in order for them to keep on doing the behavior. 
So, for instance, if you pay people to give up smoking or paying for it to lose weight, you need to pay them more and more and more, right? So there's that, so external rewards, or people feel guilty about a behavior that they're doing or overeating or they're drinking or whatever it may be, or the fact they got married or in great shape and now they're not, they feel guilty. So it's guilt that drives them to do a behavior or I'm not being a good role model. Or the other main area is this is coercion. So people are not, you need to change, you need to lose weight, you need to stop drinking, you need to stop smoking. All right, I'll bloody well do it. Deggy and Ryan have shown the vast majority of people who stay in that phase of motivation fail, ultimately. And I think this is a major problem in our industry. The weight loss industry is the only industry that thrives on a 95 to 97% failure rate, right? And so people try, they fail, they yo-yo diet, they do all of these things, they screw their metabolism in the long term. What Decky and Ryan have shown is that when people cross the threshold of autonomy, where they become self-determined, that is, they find their own reasons why it's important for them, not for anybody else, that's when they're successful, right? And that's when long-term behavior change happens. And then it's linked into self-efficacy, the belief that what I'm doing is making a difference, which gives a positive feedback loop to the brain. Actually, this is working. This is great. I'm going to keep doing it because... With all change, we have ambivalence, right? If you think of a goal, part of you really wants to get there. You want to achieve the goal, but there's another part of your brain's going, hold on a minute, ah, that means we've got to reduce our drinking and we've got to get up early in the morning and I can't eat that food, and it resists, right? So there are strategies, for instance, motivational interviewing, which helps to resolve people's ambivalence towards change, right? That's where coaching comes in, right? And that's where I realized years ago, telling people what to do is not the way ahead. When you use a coaching thing where you help them to find their own reasons why it's important to them, and then you help them to come up with strategies and how people can help them and all of these things rather than telling them. And the key thing is to sit there and you know what they need to do, but you've got to ask questions so as they tell you. Because when they tell you, they have ownership over it. Right? And then they're much more likely to do it. Uh, and when people start to use that approach, they become much more successful. Business coaches never tell you what to do. They tease the answers out of you because you're much more, you're going to be much more compliant and inherent if it comes out of your own mouth. So I think that's a, a, a skill in our industry that is highly undervalued. And lots of people, I've seen some trainers who have more knowledge than you could shake a stick at, but they're crap trainers because they don't employ these strategies. Likewise, I've seen other people who really don't have great technical knowledge, but are fabulous trainers and get real good results from their clients because they get inside their heads and they help them with all of this stuff. Okay, Sorry, so that's a very long answer to that question, by the way. That's good, great. The more you've got to share, the better. So that would, um, saying there that the, you know, you've seen trainers who are achieving this so therefore, to, to have this effect on clients and the people that need it most, you don't necessarily need to be a coach, but you, if you're a personal trainer, you can still employ coaching techniques and tactics. So how can your average PT go about doing this? Look, well, I, probably the best thing to do is just to go online and research motivational interviewing. Right. Um, motivational interviewing is proven technique, particularly in health behavior change. And, and it started off 20 odd years ago for alcohol problems. And now it's been used in a whole host of areas and it's been shown for long term behavior change. It beats stuff like cognitive behavior therapy, which is actually quite a successful therapy, but hard to do. And um, see, um, uh, uh, motivational interviewing is better in the long run. 
right? And so basically, I'll teach this at a basic level to some per to personal trainers. And there's an approach called the OARS approach. So the OARS is asking open-ended questions, right? Tell me why you're here. You know, why is that important to you? Getting them to talk about stuff, right? What do you think you need to do to change? Second is then giving them affirmations, um, which helps to, to build some rapport with them. Um, R stands for reflective listening. So basically, you let them do most of the talking. And then every now and then you say, so, so just let me check that I've got this right. The main reason you're here is you want to lose 10 kilos. And as we've chatted, you've said the, the, the reason that's important to you ultimately comes down to self-esteem. Steam. You would like to lose that 10 kilos in the next eight months. Um, some of the strategies you want to do are this, this, this. Is that right? Have, have I got that right? What that does is that person goes, they're actually listening to me. This person's listening to me, which is one of the key things in strengthening that relationship. And what all of the research is showing is the key driver of success in outcomes, whether it's with doctors or with personal trainers, is the warmth of the relationship, right? If you develop a rapport with someone, cardiologists who use motivational interviewing have, have much, much higher um, results in terms of, of their, their clients changing their lifestyle than a cardiologist would come in and say, you're going to die if you don't stop smoking and exercise more, right? And it's developing that warm relationship through those motivational interviewing thing. The last thing of the always approach, by the way, is S for summarizing. So at the end of it, you summarize, but what you want to do is you want to collect. Roy Sugarman told me this, who's a, a neuroscientist I used to work a lot with, uh, a lot of users got a lot of respect for. And he said that summarizing is like you collect the individual flowers and hand them back a bouquet. Now the flowers are their self-motivational statements or change talk, right? So I need to stop drinking so much. I need to tweak my diet. I need this person to help me. So all of that change talk is the bits that you grab and you reflect back in a summary at the end of it. Right? So that's a very simple approach and people can read about it online. There's lots of guides. And if they start to use this approach, um, you'll see that it's much more successful. A lot of people do some of those things naturally, right? And they're the people who are good at influencing people. Because really, I think we're just agents of change in this industry. Yeah. Vast majority of people come and they want change. There's very few people who've ever walked into to my practice and go, I want you to help me to stay exactly the same, right? That's all I want. So it's about change and that's about helping to in them to influence, are we us influencing them so that they can help change themselves? Okay, so there's a vast and ever-increasing percentage of society that's obese yeah. and suffering lifestyle diseases. Mm -hmm. How do we reach that sector of society and use these techniques to reach people that, that aren't coming to the fitness industry at the moment? Is that, is that a possibility? Mm. So it's a great question, and I'd like to almost expand on your question before I answer it. So I think part of the issue, right, we've got 14% participation in, in the whole fitness industry of Australians. And, and part of the issue about why we're not having more of an influence um, is because we've got an obesogenic environment, right? Uh, the built environment is obesogenic. That means we have a built environment where we don't move very much um, anymore. And there's food available on every street corner, lots of which wasn't even in existence 30 years ago, right? And this basically is in conflict with our hunter-gatherer genes, right? Quote from Frank Burke in 2002, the current human genome requires and expects us to be highly physically active for normal functioning. 
So I think we've got a huge role to play in all of this. Now, we're fighting against a, a thing where workplace physical activity has dropped very significantly in the last 20 years, about 100 calories a day, which equates over five day week to 500 calories over 46 working uh, week, uh, sorry, year. That's 23,000 calories, which is the energy equivalent of three kilos of fat. Now, it doesn't exactly translate like that, but it's significant, right? And the, the, we know that people who are going from underweight or normal weight to obese generally gain one to two kilos of fat. So it's just that 100 calories a day difference can explain it. Now, there's other things that are much more complex, such as the quality of the nutrition, processing carbohydrates, all of that stuff. But to start to answer your question, I think we need to work with government and we also need to work with the likes of private health insurers and life insurers um, to really get our services out there at a cheaper rate. So not having fitness as, as a fringe benefit, not taxing that as a fringe benefit, I think is absolutely key. 93, sorry, 93% of all spending on healthcare in this country is on tertiary treatment, right? So we wait for people to get sick and then we give them drugs or put them in hospital and we try to fix it. For every chronic condition that's been studied, we find that primary and secondary prevention is more effective, it's cheaper and it's less painful. So we need to really collaborate together to drive the message to governments and, and, and private health insurers that the stuff that we are doing is really important. And I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of work with Medibank at the minute on corporate health and, and then hope to get into to this space where Medibank will go, actually, we'll give discounts to personal trainers who've hit a certain level, right? Or gyms that have hit a certain level. Because the research is there that when people move more, it changes gene expression in a very positive way. And when people are sedentary, it changes gene expression in a very negative way. So I think we need to collaborate. We need to not fight against each other. We need to have a unified voice and we need to, we need to lobby governments and, and healthcare providers and private health insurers and life insurance providers where they can see that they can make money out of collaborating with us. Because basically it's money that makes everything go right. Uh, and, and I think governments are becoming more and more aware that healthcare costs alone are going to make this country bust by 2050. The journal The Lancet did a study on this and showed that we are going to be bust and the likes of the United States, the UK, Australia will be broke by 2050 just because of healthcare costs. You know, there is a year-on-year -year increase in the proportion of GDP that we spend on healthcare. And 93% of that spending is on tertiary treatment, which is no, it's not as effective, right? So we need to keep ramming this message. We also, on a personal level, need to keep getting results with people because when we get results, they tell their friends, right? And so we've just got to collaborate together as an industry to get the voice out there, but we've got to do effective lobbying as well. And how can uh, your how can your PTs how can your uh, everyone in the industry on a day to day basis help help reinforce this message or help help bring this to to government attention? Yeah, look, I think there's a number of things we can do individually, right? So number one, we can increase our professionalism, right? So. There are certain aspects of our industry that are viewed negatively. There's certain celebrities, trainers that are, that, you know, there, there's, there's TV shows that show us in a negative light, some would say. But uh, there's also some 
some trainers and some gyms that give us a negative view. I think if, if we are helping ourselves and helping each other become more professional, that's one thing. We've also got to continue to learn and to try to become better. So have that mindset of Kaizen, of continuous improvement. But we also need to back the bodies that are going to be doing the lobbying because one person on a crusade is is not as powerful as that person joining others on a crusade that has one voice or a couple of voices. So for instance, getting behind network and Filex is really important because when it's more successful, there's a stronger voice. And the likes of Fitness Australia and Physical Activity Australia, those sorts of organizations that can do the lobbying um, is important. But it's also important to use your vote, your membership fees, to lobby them to do the lobbying, right? So they should say, really, personal trainers should be going to the likes of Fitness Australia and Physical Activity and Network and saying, I'll buy a membership if you guys lobby government even further, right? And so if we can create a movement amongst the PTs, a Groundswell movement, to lobby you guys to do the lobbying work, I think that's going to be more successful. Fantastic. Paul, thank you very much for speaking with Network. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Always is. For more articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au.